I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, and this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science, and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Hi. Today, we're talking about the treatment of depression. And with me, I've got my colleague, Dr. Murad Wahba, consultant adult psychiatrist with great expertise in mood disorder. So this is a continuation of our depression episode. We've told people in the last episode what depression looks like for adults and what depression looks like for kids and for teenagers. So how do we treat it? I'm going to start with medication because people don't really um, hear about medication a lot, but they do hear about therapies. Let's tell people the outline. The outline is we, we kind of stratify depression, don't we, into mild, moderate and severe. And we think about what we need to do immediately. So if it's still in the area of, okay, we can manage on the mild side, it's on the moderate side, then we start with psychotherapy because that takes some time to kick in. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think we should probably stop here for a second, right? Because you're making a couple of important points here. So the first one is that the initial presentation really dictates what you need to do first because people can present in any area of the spectrum. Yes. So, so when, when you're tackling any kind of problem, you need to know, okay, what do I need to act on right now? For some people, maybe they'll be very ill and we need to do something quite drastic very quickly. But as you say, for other people who fall on the mild to moderate end of the spectrum or the maybe milder side, then the interventions that are offered are perhaps a little bit slower, take a bit longer, but seem to have a degree of skill. One of which is what you're talking about, which is the talking therapy. So maybe we can talk about those a little bit. So in terms of managing, for example, people with, you know, milder depressions, the current NICE guidelines actually are almost all around either some kind of either behavioral intervention or a psychotherapeutic intervention. Um, going from things like group CBT, group behavioral activation to even group exercise uh, and antidepressants really being at the very end. When we're thinking about different ways of psychotherapy, different types of psychotherapy, I think it might, it might help a little bit to talk about one or two. So maybe CBT is the, is the most common one? The CBT is, de- is, is what most commonly is used, and there's a lot of evidence around it, and probably because it's a very structured therapy. And, and in our episode, talking about psychotherapy and, and jargon busting that, there's a lot more detail. but Let's remind people of the golden triangle of CBT, which is thoughts, feelings, and behavior. And the working theory behind this kind of therapy is that everything starts with a thought, in this case, a negative thought, and that leads to a feeling, and the feeling leads to a behavior. And often this happens um, kind of in the background. People don't really, people aren't really aware of it. 
and they just behave in certain ways. And, and often that feeds into the loop of being more depressed and being more low. And then behavioral activation. I don't know if you know this, but this was, um, I was part of a, of a research around behavioral activation for children. And behavioral activation is the easier, cheaper version of CBT, where they kind of take the behavioral bit of CBT. So they only take the work. So CBT works on the thoughts. They help you visit, kind of become aware of, and then change the negative thoughts, the sticky kind of thought patterns. And then they help you work on the behavior aspect. You do a diary of what you do most, um, of what you go through in day to day. And then you make a diary of how that makes you feel. And then you kind of start to tackle those behaviors by changing them bit by bit. Yeah. So it's kind of like it's you're almost finding a way to hack your brain in a way. When you build this awareness, I think a lot of the time you're kind of your brain is sort of driving and you're in the passenger seat, you know, you you. It's almost like you're on autopilot. You know, you wake up, you have some thoughts, you have some habits that you're used to doing, and you just kind of follow those and you have a thought and you, you do what it says. And it's kind of, you're in harmony with this kind of process, but sometimes the process works against you and it starts feeding you information or giving you information about the world or directing you towards things that actually become, become harmful to you. So it's almost like the programming malfunctions in a way. You know, for example, it starts telling you people don't like you. You shouldn't really leave the house. You shouldn't really go to that party or you shouldn't really call that friend or nobody wants to hear from you or you should stop talking anyways. Nobody likes to hear your voice. You're a bit, you know, stupid or whatever it is. And then it just kind of, and then this can influence your behavior. So you do that a bit more and then it kind of self-perpetuates. So I think the majority of psychotherapy is built start with building this awareness, building this awareness of, okay, actually, you know what, then there is a space between me and the process that is happening inside my mind. I, I can build a space between that. And the thing maybe that I think about, uh, I feel like it's kind of an easy way to think about it. It's like when someone cuts you off and you're driving, for example, an instinct could be that you want to either swear at them or, you know, do something as to do, do some kind of reaction to it. But between this action and the reaction, there's a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that happen. So you already, you received the information that came in, your mind told you something about what that might mean. Maybe that person, I don't know, you know, how could they do this to you? Or maybe they don't respect you or somehow that it's personal or something. And then the reaction is to kind of swerve or to, to swear at them or to do something. So in this instantaneous reaction, there, there's a whole process going in between. And if you're not aware of this process, you, you will be driven by whatever instinct or whatever reaction comes to you. Same if you think about the panic attack, you know, the people who, for example, are having panic attacks, the first time they have it, they can think that they're dying in their mind. The mind says, I'm dying. The heart is going really fast. The breathing is, is, is going quickly, short breath, etc. And then once you know that there's a panic attack, the next time this happens, you can say, oh, actually, I, I know what's happening. It's like, you know, when you get an angry email and you don't respond straight away because you know that you are angry, you know this, you know that whatever content's going to come out right now, it's going to get you in trouble. So it's like taking the step back. It's like, I know my thoughts are colored by emotions right now and my actions will be colored by emotions right now. So I take a step back. So this, this very, you know, basic awareness. Um, 
and you can kind of, there's all sorts of clever ways of, you know, identifying different thoughts and working with them individually and stuff like that. So it's like a skill, you know, it's like a skill. The behavioral bit is based on action, right? So action used to dictate or to change the mood because your brain is making new connections all the time and, and it needs some kind of enriched environment. So it needs stimulation to make these connections. If you're sitting at home in a dark room, not doing anything, nothing is happening, you kind of, you lose this, you lose this ability. So getting out and doing things, being in green spaces, interacting with people, it gives you this en en enrichment, you know, so it can, it, um, so using this action to, so if, you know, it's like, if you're feeling bad, you make yourself get up and go for a walk, even though you don't want to do it. It's helpful, I think, to explain to people how these things work, because these are the most commonly offered types of therapy for depression. And research tells us it works. In my experience with children, it does work. Most of all, what works is the religiousness of it, kind of the coming in every week, doing that work, going away with sheets of homework, being focused on that is really helpful. Um, and in my experience, it often, the problem with them is that they don't stick. They're very focused. And often what people need is a type of top up for these kinds of therapies. I don't know if that's your experience for adults. It's, it's anything like that, you know, from CBT to psychodynamic therapy to medication, everything can poop out after a little bit. And, and, and sometimes you need a, you need a, a refresher to remember, okay, this is how I deal with this. This is how I used to do this. It's a skill. And then there's the aspect of lifestyle. Let's talk very briefly again about lifestyle. We said something about exercise. And also before we went on to record this, we were talking about some of our personal experiences of feeling pressure and feeling um, the, 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 the mounting demands of, of life. And, and we were talking about how, how lifestyle really does affect how we feel and does affect how we cope. And I'm wondering about for children and young people, sometimes just making some lifestyle changes is really helpful. And lifestyle changes, this is not like lip service. This is not telling you, oh, eat better. Oh, exercise, do yoga, drink some more water. Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's just being, it's just, being kind to yourself. Like if you, if there are situations that are difficult for you, just change them. I've, I've, I've had patients who'd really struggle, for example, with school. And sometimes as hard as that is, the option of just going homeschooled or changing school or deciding to go, you know, just go somewhere else took a lot of time for everyone to make that decision. Like, oh, you know, it takes a lot of time. But once it's made, it makes a massive difference because everybody's fighting to, to, to try and, and, and meet the demand. You know, everybody's fighting to keep this child in this particular school because of whatever. It's close to home. It's great. Whatever. Everybody's fighting to keep this kid in this amount of A-levels, this number of A-level subjects. But then what's the point? What's the point if, if you're struggling 
under this demand. That's not what you're made for. You know, you were just not made to do this number of A-levels. You were just not made to survive in this kind of environment. Sometimes just change it is helpful. For some people, the case is we change the lifestyle or we change a situation and then things improve. But then we find that depressive symptoms come back and maybe it was something more ingrained. But a lot of the times it just goes away. It just really goes away and improves. What's what's the situation for adults? Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, not many people that I see by the time I get to see them. Um, I mean, of course, lifestyle changes are, are massively important. And, and um, I'll talk about that in a bit. I, I guess by the time I get to see a lot of people, perhaps they're at a different level or a different kind of part of their of their illness, or maybe they're a bit more more ill than they would be if I saw them with a GP, for example. But to be honest, now that I think about it, even with these people, a lot of the time, not being able to be in the environment that enriches them plays a, a really massive role in their illness. You know, it's like a plant, right? It's like if you've got a plant, you need the right type of soil, you need the right, you know, amount of sunlight, you need the right amount of water. And I know it's it's cliche, but it's just you're you're a living organism that has your own balance. And we are now in increasingly knowing the impact of things like stress, for example, on 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 depression. So you know, times of increased stress can lead to depressive episodes. We're now understanding that things like the bacteria in your gut can play a big role in your mood, you know, so it's, it's kind of to the extent that they do some experiments on mice and they can get some uh, bacteria from depressed mice and put it in the bacteria of non-depressed mice and make them depressed. Um, and they can get the bacteria from mice that are obese and put them inside mice that are not, and then they can start putting on weight. So things like diet, where we think, you know, it's, it's, it's perhaps, it's kind of like, it's also a bit of a cliche that there's, there's ways with which food and different aspects of our life interact with our bodies that we're not very aware of. Things like exercise, exercise, and there's a massive systematic review that was out recently, also uh, uh, confirming the benefits of exercise. So really the, these balancing aspects uh, play a massive role in well-being and, and cannot be understated. So medication. For children and young people, what we tend to use are um, SSRIs, which basically focus on serotonin, one of the chemicals in the brain. And just in a nutshell, the idea is that we kickstart the brain in a way where we don't know how. We have theories about how these medications help. One of them is that you have two key chemicals in the brain, noradrenaline or norepinephrine, same thing, different names, serotonin and dopamine. And then if you kick start one of them, then the brain kind of goes back into its normal balance. And that's why it takes time. And that's why we get people to stay on them for a long time, because it takes that long for the brain to stick on that balance. It's like bringing something back to rhythm. And if you bring it back to a rhythm, you need to let it be for a while for it to kind of self-sustain. And we tend to use these medications for children. So for children, we only use a few things, something called fluoxetine, sertraline, escitalopram, and citalopram. For adults, the choices are endless. Yeah, we, we've got quite a few choices. I, mean, I, I think the re-establishing rhythm uh, kind of uh, analogy suggests that there is a natural rhythm that putting in an antidepressant brings back. 
It may be true, but it's. I guess it's. It it feels like it's a bit m- more complicated than that. There's some studies that show that the inflammatory system is is involved. You know, there's this inflammation involved in in the mechanism of depression, and that um, others. Um, you know, sometimes when you take away tryptophan, tryptophan is the amino acid that is used to make serotonin. When you deplete people of tryptophan, people who have a history of depression, who are well, they start to become depressed again. For example. So we know that serotonin has something to do with that as well. Uh, also, it has to do with stress hormones and levels of stress hormones. It has to do with levels of something called BDNF, which is, which is responsible for your brain making new connections as well. There's a lot of different changes that are detected, including changes in specific brain areas. Um, I guess it's not as simple as having a dysregulation that you put back to regulate and then it's fine because... For a lot of people, they, they don't go back to fine and like they don't go back to how they were feeling before. They just kind of feel a bit better in a way that makes them able to go about their daily lives, for example. It's, it's not as difficult. You know, it kind of takes the edge off, so to speak. So it doesn't bring it back to, to how they were before. For some people it is, for some people not. For some people, they go back to their norm. And for some people, they will have partial improvement. In, in your experience, is, is that what happens most of the time? People go back to partial improvement? Um, I think a lot of the times what happens is that for some people, they have one episode of depression and then they never have another one. Uh, and that's it. For some people, they have a recurring uh, illness. So they get better and then something happens and then they get worse again and then they get better and then they get worse again. It's kind of it's a relapsing, remitting illness. Like, you know, like when, you, when somebody's got lupus or, or, or any kind of or hypertension, diabetes or something like that, where it's kind of recurring. So it's, they liken it to something like rheumatoid arthritis, for example. I, I was just going to say, it's interesting that you mentioned inflammatory processes because it does flow like an autoimmune disease. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there is uh, work going on to try and uh, tackle it with uh, anti-inflammatories. And I think in children, it's the same situation what we tend to tell people is that if a medication works so we try but for children we tend to start with it depends who you talk to most of the time we start with phloxetine but with clinical experience most specialists will change that so they i personally will use other medications sometimes to start with uh, depending on the person and then if it works it works and we leave it we don't touch it and we count from the moment we have full remission. Before full remission, we don't dare remove it. If we get to full remission, which does happen um, often for children, then we start counting. We start a clock. And we go a year or two, likely two, of a person staying on medication while in full remission. Um, is that the case for adults? Well, well, we do aim for remission because when people are in remission, they have a less, they have less risk of, uh, of, um, of relapse. We do aim for remission, whether you get it as much or not, that, that's not always the case. I don't think, um, you do try and aim for it and your choice of antidepressants really is dictated by a few things. I think so one, there's different properties to the chemicals that we use that help us think what can be best for each individual person. So. One is the number of uh, transmitters they work on. Two is some of them have some peculiar qualities that make them better than others in certain ways. And three is how long they stay in the body because that helps as well. So 
how long a medication stays in the body can determine, for example, how bad the withdrawal will be. That, that's if, if, you miss, if you miss a pill, how will you feel? Exactly. So if a, if a drug is in and out of your body in 12 hours, you will feel it. If you, if you, if you take it once a day, I usually you take it twice. But if you miss one or two doses, you feel it. You feel the withdrawal straight away. Does that mean that antidepressants are addictive? No, it doesn't mean that they're addictive. It, it, it means that they reach a state in your body that your body gets used to them. Um, you know, and, and that's different than addiction. I think addiction, in my mind, is when you are using something to avoid a feeling, which is, you know, interesting because you, well, you're, not, you're not, I guess you're not avoiding feeling it that way. But so it's like, it's a temporary momentary relief of a specific feeling. So for example, if every time somebody had a panic attack, you give them, you know, something that takes away the panic attack, they easily get addicted to the panic attack and they get a tolerance and they take, they keep taking more and more and it kind of keeps getting higher and then it stops working. So we don't have that with antidepressants. We don't, we don't, we, the, people don't develop tolerance. No, they don't develop tolerance, but sometimes, sometimes with the dose that they're on, they need a higher dose after a little bit actually. In, in, in my mind, and, and what I see is that it is the same level of dependence that you have as a diabetic on insulin. You cannot argue that a person who has hypertension is addicted to the hypertensive medication. You can stop the medication whenever you want. And in a couple of weeks, the withdrawal symptoms will go away. And some medications, you won't even feel anything if you stop the medication. But the likelihood of depressive symptoms coming back is quite high. Yeah, but then I, I think there's also an interesting bit of whether this is the depression coming back or this is the withdrawal, because withdrawal can be, can be, can be um, quite unpleasant as well. But yes, if, if you do respond well, you know, sometimes you would relapse if you stop your antidepressant. And I think your analogy is a good one, you know. So that's medication. Let's talk about transmagnetic stimulation. Yeah, so it's this is basically you. Uh, it's kind of a big machine that you go and sit in. It's like a big chair, and it has a magnetic coil uh, right here. And the coil seems to induce a magnetic current, and it is aimed at specific part of the brain. And um, you uh, generally would be there for maybe. I think there's different protocols now. Even I think you do it in quite a short space of time, but anywhere from like twenty minutes to an hour maybe. And you do this five times a week for four to six weeks and that's it you're done so that's quite a lot actually and uh, going to visit the clinic five times a week is, is quite a lot and now they've got these um accelerated protocols where you do it all in one week and um yeah it's showing good evidence of efficacy and it's recommended by nice as well is that something that you offer to people straight away or do you have to try a couple of things no, they need to have tried a couple of things, but I think it's, so there's no consensus at the moment around the UK of when is the best time to use it. It's, it's generally for people difficult to treat depression, depression that hasn't responded to one or two antidepressants. So you tend to try two antidepressants first. Each, each antidepressant, you'd, you'd just do the whole full thing, 12 weeks. Yeah, you know, you just need a good dose and a good duration. You need a good enough run to know that your antidepressant hasn't worked. That generally means you need a good dose. So you need to go up to a dose that, that works, you know, because sometimes people start at a small dose and then they never go up. And, and, and that just is not a fair trial of antidepressant. Or they, they start it and they don't go as high. 
And then, yeah, usually TMS is one of the things that's offered a bit later in the algorithm. And ECT, we touched on ECT last time, electroconvulsive therapy. And we talked about how it's sometimes used in emergencies where people, there, there, where, where there is a risk to life, potentially. Is it something that you offer to people when there is no risk to life, when there is treatment resistance, for example, or straight off the bat? Yeah, we can offer that, uh, well, not straight off the bat, but like when, when I think when um, there's a few indications. So one, patient preference is an important one. If a person thinks, yeah, this works for me, I like it. Two is, is acuity, immediate risk to life. Three is there's a severe is treatment resistance as well. Uh, you know, when, when, when there's, um, when somebody doesn't get well on, on a number of different things and you're sort of stuck. Or when they're very, very severely ill and uh, they're not responding. So if somebody you know, has psychosis, for example, and they're not responding to the medication you're giving them and you've tried a few things and you're not reaching anything and you need uh, some kind of quick intervention so um, or an intervention that would work. So ECT seems to work well for that. And do you mix then TMS or ECT with the medication or do you just stay on that? No, so for ECT, generally you would do the acute treatment and then um, you the best outcome for people seems to be when they are continued on medication afterwards. So you still have to say, take medication? Yeah, you need to, you need to, fin you, it, 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 it's better when you are on medication after the ECT has finished. In the next episode, we're going to talk about um, this subject in more detail, but let me just allude to it a little bit psychedelics there's lots of hoo-ha around psychedelics and depression give us the uh, teaser i think it's an interesting area of study and i think for a lot of reasons because um there's a lot of layers to how it might work from its immediate effect on your brain's locks you know like the receptors um to the importance of the actual experience that people have and how it can build up that self-awareness that we talked about and bring things to the surface that are helpful to be worked with in therapy to the idea that it can itself affect the brain's ability to make new connections and can have an effect on the brain's inflammation to having immediate effects on how different parts of the brain talk to each other. So there is a wide range of things that are working together or might be working together to make these substances work. And also it's important to know that they are not all the same. So when we're thinking about psilocybin is different than we're thinking about MDMA is different than we're thinking about ketamine is different than we're thinking about DMT. So if we put LSD, DMT, psilocybin in one group, MDMA in another group, ketamine in another group, for example, You'll find that each group of these um, has different chemical characteristics and each chemical characteristics creates a different altered state and the characteristics of the altered state lends it well to one type of treatment or another. So with MDMA, for example, you can have a lowered state of anxiety with a heightened state of, or, or kind of a, a lucidity. So people are aware they can talk about things but their anxiety levels are, are low and also they have this surge of uh, chemical called oxytocin so they can easily bond to the therapist that they're working with and they can also more easily feel compassion towards themselves 
It's really hard to summarize. <laughs> it's it's um, what we're definitely not saying is uh, go out and find a drug dealer. I know that this is your pet subject and it's your area of research. And I'm so looking forward to having a full chat about this. But I think what we're trying to say here is that there are exciting new areas of treatment being explored in science. And it's so close. We might see changes in the guidance Maybe in our life, maybe in in the next decade, we never know. And it's exciting and it's interesting. And what we've talked about today, I think, sums it up in a way that um, hopefully helps people understand what's out there to help depression. And I think the main message is that we're saying is people are different and our bodies are affected by their environment massively and a lot of different ways. And we've talked today about therapy. We've talked about antidepressants. We've talked about other types of medication. We've talked about psychedelics and we've talked about ECT, TMS. And that's it. That was a lot. There's a lot of options out there. You know, a lot of time we see people coming, I've tried two, three antidepressants saying, I've tried everything. You are very far from trying everything. That's a good place to to end this and thank you so much Rod it's always interesting uh, talking to you thank you take care thank you for joining me today remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support if you enjoyed listening subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes this is Dr. Tagrid wishing you well